president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETS sponsor, and also a registered representative for Side Fund Services. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, the author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note the professor is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer of sale on investment products. The views of our guests and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. I've got a great show lined up today. We have a special return guest in the studio here, Jared Dillian, editor of the Daily Dirt Nap, author, podcaster. Uh, we'll turn over to Jared, but thank you for coming back, coming to the, the Wharton studio, Jared. Jeremy, thanks for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure. We're going to get into a good discussion with Jared. He'll be here with us for the hour. Uh, second part of the program, we'll be talking with Mark Chandler, the Vice President and Global Head of Market Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, talking about his new book, The Political Economy of Tomorrow. Um, before I, I start talking to Jared, let me just welcome the professor, uh, not here with us in the studio, but by phone. Professor, nice to have you talking with us this week. Yeah. Uh, so, strong employment report. Yeah. You know what? Obviously... Janet Yellen had a peak at ADP report last week, maybe a little peak at this one. When You know, I, I was really surprised, you know, last Friday when she said, yeah, we're going in March, because I said, how, how do you know what's going to come apart on, on, on today? And I think she got the word that it was strong, and it was very strong. Not quite as strong as last month, but wow, and a good one. And the participation rate again stayed, and not quite as Goldilocks as before but really um, a, a very, very solid report uh, going through. The only thing that's, that's a little bit of worry is um, you, we see oil. And, uh, you know, the markets are uh, WTI is at 48 now. Um, this, remember, too fast tightening, the first place you're going to see it happening is in the commodity markets and in the oil markets. And that was that signal last year when they tightened in December and the markets weren't ready and we had that oil swoon that really set all the world markets on edge. So, uh, I mean, this is nothing like that. I'm not saying, but, you know, the, the markets are saying, yeah, it looks like a steady increase over here, but don't go overboard. <laughs> the world economy isn't that strong that uh, can, uh, can take a lot of hikes from from the dollar, but uh, no, there's certainly nothing to complain about uh, over here. We uh, we didn't have you last week for Dow 21,000. We're now trading a little bit right below Dow 21,000. Markets, uh, equity markets are not doing much on on this uh, yeah. employment report news. Although the the currency markets, the dollar is weakening here. The bond rates um, have have dropped just a touch. Yeah, well, bond will, bond will go with the oil. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I it, it it is true because. The strong trend in the U.S., you would expect that to be in the dollar, and yet I think that that is already in the dollar. And you also do see acceleration in Europe and in Japan that's offsetting that, and that's why you don't see any sort of a dollar runaway in today's markets. Sure. 
Any, uh, I know you're you're stretched here on, on time. Any uh, any final final closing thoughts on on how you're thinking about the the markets over the next few yeah. weeks? Well, don't forget we do have the Wednesday meeting. Uh, I mean, unless we, you know, it's it's virtually a foregone conclusion with this, you know, that that we're going to have the hike. Uh, I would look at the price ones though and see how robust they are. Um, and uh, the words that come out of the statement uh, uh, next week are are going to be important in terms of knowing whether we're going to, you know, continue every other meeting to have a hike or we might have a pause later on. Yeah, we'll, we'll check in back with you uh, as soon as we can. Thanks uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jerry. Bye. So we're going to continue the conversation with Jared here. Um, Jared, before we just react to the professor's comments, thoughts on the markets, um, you know, we're going to d- dig into a lot of these issues. Let's just remind our listeners, tell us about your where we can find you. You do so much writing, uh, and I follow you at the Daily Dirt Nap, but that's certainly not all that you do. So l- let's just give our listeners a little bit about sure. where, where they can find your, your readings. Yeah, I, I, I would like a lighter workload, I think. But I write for I, I have my own newsletter called the Daily Dirt Nap, which you can find at dailydirtnap.com, and that's meant for a professional investor audience. And I also write for Malden Economics. And I have a free weekly newsletter that I write for them called The Tenth Man. You can go to MaldenEconomics.com and sign up for that. It is free. And then I have a paid newsletter for them called Street Freak, uh, which comes out once a month. And it's really more of a classic newsletter designed for retail investors. And uh, I also write for Forbes. I write for ETF.com. And most recently, I was invited to um, participate at Bloomberg View. My first column came out yesterday, so very busy. Got to wonder where you get all the time to do to do this writing. Yeah, it's a, not much bandwidth left over. I uh, hear you. And so, with, but then you still decided to start a podcast. Yeah, the podcast is. I've done three episodes so far, and it's called the Monthly Dirtcast. So if you go to iTunes, you'll it's it's on Stitcher and Google Play. Yeah. So if you it, it's called the Monthly Dirtcast, and and the take of the podcast is we don't I actually I'm not doing highbrow finance I'm doing lowbrow finance mm-hmm. and I'm talking to everyday people about financial issues and just for example the last guest that I had on is a real estate agent in South Carolina and he does low end real estate he does mobile homes uh, he does houses under $100,000, stuff that, stuff that he brokers on Craigslist mm-hmm. it's a really interesting market and you would be shocked at the level uh, that this market is actually government subsidized, so that's the the last episode is super interesting. So that's that's what I do. I concentrate. I, I do more of the low end of finance. It's very interesting. Is is he seeing a, an upturn there? I was I was actually reading somebody tweeting out earlier today that we, you might be surprised how fast job or sort of wage gains at the low end is is coming. That might that's sort of not a story that that's in the news today. Is, is he seeing what's he seeing? Housing housing prices on the low end um, in that part of the country are actually on fire. Hmm. And part of it is because of wage gains, but a, a lot of it is actually because of migration and people coming from up north and going down south. That actually accounts for a lot of it. A lot of demographic people. Yeah, demographic you changes. Want the, yeah. You want the warmer weather as you get yep. older. Yep. That makes sense. So let, maybe let's reflect on some of the big issues of the day. We saw the employment report. Um, so you see some big moves in. We'll talk with currencies with, with Mark, but any maybe start talking at a high level if we start getting into the market commentary. I mean, give us your general sense. Uh, it's been a Trump world. Everything's been dominated by Trump discussions. Maybe start there. How, how, how are you thinking about the markets today? Well, uh, you know, the payroll report was a little bit of a foregone conclusion because of what we saw with ADP earlier in the week. And I think it underscores that the Fed is way behind. Um, and they've been behind for 
Um, I mean, since 2014. The Fed has really had a chance to hike rates in 2014, and they didn't take that chance. And um, we've gotten two hikes in December and one in each year since then. And it's really, the Fed is just way behind. I mean, if you look at, you know, any sort of rules-based methodology on where interest rates should be on an equilibrium level, it's 3 to 5%. And so here we are with Fed funds at, you know, about 75 basis points and the economy doing great and jobs doing great. And it's, um, they're behind the curve. So now we've had, and I know this is one of your favorite Fed Fed people to follow. So we've had uh, James Blair on the show a few times, and he used to be one of the most hawkish people, uh, thinking that they should hike more aggressively. Uh, and then he's now actually, I'd say, the most dovish, where he basically says, "You can't predict what regimes you're in. We're in this slow growth regime, um, so our current neutral rate is actually like 70 basis points, which is where where they are today." He feels like they're not too accommodative, they're not too tight. Um, in some respect, that you, you would have expected much higher inflation when he was advocating for much higher rate increases. He was on that path. We should have hiked. Yeah. Now, now he's saying we didn't get the inflation we should have. How, how do you respond to that? I think he's right. He was right before, and he's not right now. And I and you know, Dr. Bullard, he contradicts. He's sort of the um, the. Um, the the person just he's he I can't think of the phrase right now but he's he's goes against the crowd he, he, goes, he against goes against consensus he goes against consensus at the yeah. Fed and I mean look even Lael Brainerd thinks we need a rate hike you know so for Bullard to say that we don't I mean that's you know it's not it's not really a matter of Bullard being dovish I mean he's just sort of pointing out he's being a devil's advocate is what he's doing that's the phrase I was looking for he's mm-hmm. devil's advocate so I mean aside from Bullard you have you have unanimity at the Fed. At this point, we're going to hike rates, and there's it's really only a discussion about how many we get this year. And I think consensus is that we'll get three, but honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if we get more. And I and I think that you know, with now that the election is out of the way, I really do think that politics played a role. I think the yeah. Fed was on hold last year because of the election. Now that the election is out of the way, they are sort of politically free to be able to hike rates. And so, and the the, re- the reason you say politics in the way you think they were trying to be supportive for there's more democratic people on the board today you thought they were trying to support a democratic party victory is that that's, what? I think that's part of it I mean the Fed look I don't think they're a bunch of political hacks but the board the board of governors you know the Obama's board of governors was all Democrats for sure yeah um, I really or I think you know they just um, um, they didn't want to give the appearance that they were influencing the election one way or another. So they were deliberately staying out of Fed hikes leading up to the election, which was a mistake. They should have hiked rates in 2016. So do you see some more inflationary trends? I mean, is that, how, is that one of the things leading you to, to that conclusion? CPI has come up a lot in the last year, and a lot of it is, is due to oil. Um, but I do think that inflationary pressures are building and really, the number one reason that they're building is because of Donald Trump. Um, he is the number one most inflationary signal bond bearish president you could possibly get. I mean, if you look at his policies on trade, we're going to have trade protectionism, which is going to increase prices in the U.S. It's just it's a tautology. It's just absolutely going to happen. His policies on immigration, if we don't take in lower cost labor, things are going to cost more. We're going to have higher prices. Um, you know, so Trump is inflationary and that is going to start feeding into the system pretty soon. 
So yeah, this, on this trade, I mean, so everybody's hung up on this border adjustment tax that people talk about. We've had Alan Hour back on the show. We've talked about the number of people. What, what's your sense on how we actually do these types of taxes? It, it seems to be there's a lot of confusion. Trump, every chance he gets, says we're going to try to change the tax, fair taxes. We want to import stuff from Mexico. We're going to have they're going to have to pay a tax on that. How, how do you just see it playing out? Well, the border adjustment tax is just a it's a stealthy tariff. It is a tariff. Um, but the reason the border adjustment tax exists is to pay for the other tax cuts that they want to do. The corporate tax rate needs to be cut. We have the highest rate in the world. And to cut it to a rate of 15 or 20 percent and allow for repatriation of income held overseas would be a very good thing. It would also be a good thing to cut individual tax rates. At 39.6, there's been talk, I think Trump's plan was to cut them to 33% in the top bracket. Um, They've already talked about, with the the Obamacare discussions, getting rid of the 3.8% surtax on investment income, which is a $1 trillion tax cut over 10 years. So, um, but all of these things can't happen unless you pass border adjustability, which will allow the bill to pass through reconciliation, which is a 50-vote in the Senate, and if it doesn't, then it's filler. It, you can filibuster it. So, I mean, what I found find interesting is Auerbach's on the program, and he is adamant that it is not a tariff, that it is not protectionist. Um, I, well, I think one of his points is it's very similar to a VAT tax, which a lot of the European countries do. And what I what I find appealing about it in a way is, you know, we th- some of these small companies in the U.S. You don't have a global revenue base, but you get your Microsoft. You open a Puerto Rico branch. You sell your patents to Puerto Rico, they're paying basically no tax, zero tax in Puerto Rico. And so that is the kind of thing where they really have this advantage that most, a lot of other general U.S.-based businesses don't have. And that's the only purpose of the border adjustment tax is to make that basically not possible. Well, I think there's also a secondary purpose. I mean, if you look at who the border adjustment tax hits the most, it's apparel retailers, right? Like the, the U.S. does not have a garment industry. And it, I mean, it, the garment industry lives in Bangladesh globally. Yeah. And the, the fact that you implement border adjustability, if you start taxing garments imported from overseas, it, the U.S. is not going to develop a garment industry spontaneously and yeah. just create a bunch of jobs. So I think there's a lot of harm that can be done. I mean, ultimately, I think it's going to have a tough time passing because... The retailers, I mean, you know, are they have a pretty strong voice. You know, Walmart has a strong voice. This would affect them massively. Yeah. Uh, they have a senator in Arkansas, Tom Cotton, who cares about this issue. So I'm yeah. not so sure it's going to happen. Yeah, our back's point is that the dollar is going to go up by as much as the tax. It's not going to cost more money. And that's the whole where it all breaks down. Right. People think, don't think the dollar is going to adjust by as much. Um, so what about certainly Trump has had a lot of, uh, besides taxes, regulations, where are the sectors you think benefit from all this Trump? We've seen certainly financials being a leader. Is that something you would stay I mean, attractive I'm, on? I or? just, uh, I've been pounding the table on financials over and over again. Um, it's Now, this is, is interesting because, you know, Sean Spicer said the other day that, you know, Trump still wants to bring back Glass-Steagall, hmm. um, which... I think I actually think from a legal and operational standpoint is an impossibility. Just, I mean, it's taken Lehman Brothers, a complex financial institution. Um, it's they're still not out of bankruptcy eight and a half years later. So to the the idea that you can take a Citigroup and split it into pieces, I think, is kind of absurd. Um, but aside from that, you start getting rid of parts of Dodd Frank, 
and you start lowering capital requirements and you get rid of the Volcker rule, I mean, financials, the banking industry can absolutely explode. Um, and it's up, I mean, I think it's, it's up significantly since the election, but I think on a long-term basis, on a five to 10 year basis, I'm still like wildly bullish. Hmm. So it's interesting. How, how much is the, the, the capital part of it? Because I think one of the things is, I was listening to Bernanke do an interview yesterday, and they were talking about the, the, getting rid of part of Dodd-Frank. And he said, if we could, there's certain parts of it that he does worry about how you resolve some of these Lehman Brothers type situations. Um, and he was saying, well, if we could just trade in higher capital for some of the relaxation elsewhere. I mean, at the end of the day, what do these banks need? They just need capital to buffer all these things and all of these other regulations, you could say, you know, are really a distraction from the real truth is that they just need capital to protect themselves. Um, I mean, is, is, is low capital or lowering capital rates a big part of the story? Well, uh, it is. But let's go back to Glass-Steagall for a minute. You know, the funny thing about Trump with his idea about Glass-Steagall is that it might actually, it, I don't, like I said, I don't think you can implement it, but if you could, it might be a good thing because you, it would encourage the creation of a broker-dealer industry that can operate at higher leverage with higher ROEs than universal banks currently can. Like there's no, what's happened is, is that the, the large money center banks have, their capital requirements are so onerous that they cannot take risk. And so what you have is that the risk-taking sector of the financial markets has become sort of non-bank broker-dealers or even large hedge funds, which I don't think is healthy for the banking industry. You want risk to be taken by banks. You want banks to be able to fail. You want them to fail. Uh, you just want them to do so in a way that you can sort of clean up after them. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what Bernanke was saying, is that some of the elements of Dodd-Frank, like these, how they how they actually resolve the banks during a crisis, how they actually go through that bankruptcy proceedings, there were some parts of that that he really wants to keep. So he was hoping that they do not repeal a certain part of Dodd-Frank, but we'll see how that plays out. Um, any other sectors in terms of where you think um, that you're, you're, you're still very positive on? I mean, financials moved a lot. It sounds like you still think they have more. Any other sectors that, that are... Areas of focus. After the election, I was very bearish on tech. And if you if you looked at the price action, what happened after the election, financials went up, tech went down, and it was a pretty sharp move. Since then, tech has recovered significantly, which surprised me. Um, one of the reasons that tech was down was for just for political reasons, because the tech industry in Silicon Valley had been so vocally anti-Trump. Hmm. Um, and uh, it's... Um, so I'm, I've been very surprised that the that the tech sector has recovered like it has. But still, on a long-term basis, if I could be long financials and short tech for the next five or ten years, I think that would be a good trade. And is that just because of the valuations? I mean, is that is that what's more behind the uh, it's things like Facebook and Google and 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 that just not having? I mean, where, where, where's the short position come from? I mean, it's it's gotten, you know, the VC industry, private valuations, it's gotten a little bit, I mean, it's been insane for a couple of years, but the Snapchat IPO, I think, was really the turning point, uh, the notion that you have this stock that doesn't have voting rights, um, and people were, you know, I mean, look, like, if a stock without voting rights is kind of like a covenant light bond, and if you think about what happens in credit cycles... At the top of the cycle, everybody's willing to buy covenant light bonds, but at the bottom of the cycle, nobody is. So the fact that people were lining up to buy a stock that doesn't have voting rights, I think is just really a sign of the times. So the Snapchat IPO, ring the bell. I th maybe. 
I don't know, yeah. but maybe, yeah. Uh, let me just reintroduce my guest here. We're talking with Jared Dillian, author of The Daily Dirt Nap here in our Wharton studio. Um, so we, 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 we touched on a number of the big issues of the day. Um, one of the themes that, that I've seen in The Daily Dirt Nap, you've talked a lot about uh, the housing bubbles brewing in some of the other markets outside the U.S. Um, if people follow you, they know Canada is at the prime rate. Or maybe talk about what you see happening in, in some of these markets. Yeah, um, I would say the three biggest housing um, bubbles in the world right now, number one is Canada, number two is Australia, and number three is Sweden, and each one of them gets sort of worse by the day. Canada is really the one that I've been following the most, and I have personal exposure to that trade. Um, if you look at, I mean, Toronto, the greater Toronto area, which they call the GTA, the greater Toronto area is up 27% in a year. It is screaming higher. Uh, I posted a listing on Twitter. Uh, actually, it wasn't on Twitter. It was in my newsletter the other day. It was a house that sold for about 900000 And then four months later, with no renovations, sold for $1.1 million, just $200,000 in four months with no renovations. Um, it's, it's, it's really gone mad. I mean, you talk about people showing up to open houses. Hundreds of people show up, hundreds of people bidding. It, I actually think the mania in Canada exceeds what we had in the U.S. 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Wow, and I, I just put up one of the big banks, um, which has just been in a straight line. It sort of bounced back down towards the end of 2015, but shot straight up in 2016. Although today, uh, here this Friday, I see it down maybe 4%, almost 5%. One yeah, of, that's because of oil. Yeah. It won a yeah. big fall today. Yeah. So is that is that one of the expressions you're still doing, sort of a short bank, short Canadian currency? Well, actually, the Canadian dollar, I think, has the potential to be the weakest current, weakest G10 currency in the world for the next couple of years. And here's why. Canadian interest rates are currently at 50 basis points. And Canada never really, here's what happens. Canada hiked rates to close to zero during the U.S. financial crisis, thinking that they would have a recession in sympathy with the U.S., but they never really did. They had a very mild recession, and then they never hiked rates. They left them hmm. at a very low level. They left them at 1%, which sort of fed this housing bubble. Very similar to the mistake that the Fed made in 2003, the Greenspan made, that caused the U.S. housing bubble, left rates for too low for too long. Um, and uh, now the U.S. is hiking uh, almost frantically. I mean, we're, we're on pace to do three or four this year, and Canada can't hike rates because they'll blow up the housing bubble. They can't lower rates because they'll make it worse. So they're kind of stuck at 50 basis points. But when it rolls in Canada and you have a housing bear market and a recession, they're going to have to cut rates to zero and probably do quantitative easing. So, yeah, so you're still bearish the Canadian currency, and then the banks, is that still something? And the banks, you know, I've been holding on to these bank shorts for a while, and it's been painful, but, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to continue to hold on to them. The yields, uh, we're seeing a little bit less than 4% dividend yields. What's, is, is it a high cost to carry? The, the it's short? very high cost very, to carry, Like yeah. 7%, 8% for the year? Yeah, it's, it's painful, but um, I'm still going to stick with it, yeah. When you believe, when I believe with a big trade, you gotta. I mean, I've seen some of the pictures. I was following a broker in Toronto who's sending out pictures of uh, on Twitter of, of all these houses that were going for one and a half, two million dollars. You're saying, whoa. Yeah, they, they don't look like nice houses. I mean, in and the funny thing is, um, I actually started writing about this trade in 2013. I thought the housing market was overvalued back then, and I had a bunch of um, newsletter subscribers from Canada probably about 30, 30 or 40 of them that unsubscribed hmm. um, because they were very sensitive about this issue. They have, you know, it was a point of national pride. Hey, how dare you say that we have a housing bubble? 
Um, and it's, you know, it's very easy for, for an outsider looking, look, looking in to, to say, you know, it's definitely mispriced, but to me, that actually says even more that it's likely about when you right. saw it, when you see people react so emotionally about that's these what happened. Of, what, yeah. Like, I mean, I know from talking with Professor Siegel, when he was calling the tech bubble in 2000, 99, 2000, he would get such angry letters and emails like, you don't know what you're talking about. And yeah. we printed some of them in the future for investors. <laughs> uh, but that that screams that these people can't take the, the negative feedback. Yeah. So is it is the money dry? Is is Canada, Australia, Sweden would definitely be a different one, but is it all Chinese money coming in there driving up prices? Is there... that's sort of the narrative? But that was more true in Vancouver and less true in in Toronto. Yeah. In Toronto, you know these these uh, these houses that are going for, these detached houses that are going for a million plus. This isn't Chinese money coming in. This is people. This is nurses who make eighty thousand dollars a year. Who are stretching to get a nine hundred thousand dollar mortgage to get a place that they can afford? They're spending sixty percent of their income on a mortgage payment. It's the same stuff that we did here, you know, ten mm. years ago. Yeah, that sounds sounds like a problem. Um, any other big themes? We're going to talk currencies. We're going to talk Europe. I think on on the second part of the program with Mark. Um, but maybe just uh, before we we have a few minutes before we get to that to that discussion. We had a lot of election cycles here in the U.S. with Trump. We're starting to think uh, we had Brexit last year. What 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 do you find from Brexit? What are the lessons you learned uh, as you're thinking about this year? Um, Brexit, I thought, was going to be, in the long run, I believed was going to be an economic positive for Great Britain to get out from under EU regulation, particularly their banking system, to get out from under EU regulation. I thought that was going to be a positive for the economy in the long run. And... It has been positive. People predicted that they'd go into a recession, and it hasn't. GDP has actually gone up. Um, but what has surprised me is how weak the currency has been and has remained weak. I would have predicted that it would have, would have recovered significantly since the actual Brexit, but it hasn't. So that continues to surprise me. And, and well, we'll talk. We'll, we'll, let's drill into the currency side a little bit more with Mark. I, there was one other topic I, I wanted to talk to you about. Your first Bloomberg View article, um, yes. where, where you're talking about um, Warren Buffett versus the hedge fund bets. Uh, people were talking about Warren's crushing these hedge funds. Uh, you take a little bit of a different take. Um, maybe explain to our listeners what what your take is. Well, the the whole argument that Warren Buffett is getting, I mean, basically he recommended that everybody should be in index funds, except for Warren Buffett. Buffett, you know, can beat an index fund, so he shouldn't be in an index fund, but everybody else should be in index funds. Uh, and what I pointed out in the article was Although that- for his money after he dies, he's going to put it in an index I fund. know, that's true. He is. So what the, the, his hedge fund bet, he basically bet somebody that- uh, a group of five fund of funds would not be able to beat the S&P 500 over a 10-year period. So this is year nine of the bet. The bet is almost over. And he published a table of the results in his investor letter. And sure enough, the S&P 500 is beating all five of the fund of funds. Well, when I looked at, I started taking a closer look at the data. And I said, actually, the interesting thing is, is that the five fund of funds are beating the S&P 500 in one respect. They all have lower volatility. And in fact, one of them had a higher sharp ratio. It had, a, it had a higher return per unit of volatility. And if you're looking at professional money management, that is what you should care about. Really, you care about managing volatility. Managing volatility is very important. Um, so even, so the, you know, the, the question I posed in the piece was, 
you know, are rich people really dumb? Like, why does the hedge fund industry exist if they continually get beat by the S&P 500? But that's not really the point of the hedge fund industry. The point of the hedge fund industry is to provide for better risk-adjusted returns, and you do that so people can stay in their investments and continue to compound it. When you take massive drawdowns, people are psychologically weak. They are forced to cut their exposure at the worst possible time. You know, the, so there's definitely a behavioral argument. I love your behavioral argument that the hedge funds help people stay invested in the market, that they have bad behaviors, they freak out as markets are, are dropping. You could also say there's a behavioral environment, why the hedge fund environment exists, because people like talking to their friends about, I'm in this exclusive club of hedge funds, um, who wants to just buy the S&P 500 that anybody can buy. So they sort of... There's some people who think just the rich get the worst advice, that they're getting paying 2 and 20 that they're going to get chopped away at fees at the fund of funds with fees upon fees. Uh, and that makes it very tough to actually ever just beat something. Now, you could say maybe the S&P 500 is not the right strategy. Maybe they need some type of lower, you know, they need some type of strategy that will get you the market but hedge some of the, the volatility. Um, and perhaps that's that's ideas for, for new Lower cost investment products, but um, well, for sure, there for sure there are hedge fund managers who don't add value. Who not only do they not beat the S and P five hundred, they add more volatility. For sure, there are people that do that. And I've also I've never really understood the fund to funds industry, the idea of paying two layers of fees, two layers of large fees, because your returns after fees tend to be pretty low. So I've I that I I personally like I know why it exists, but I would not invest in the fund to funds for that reason. Um, but I think that by and large, the alternative investment management industry does add a lot of value to people, and people have done very well with their investments. Very good. We've been talking with Jared Dillian, the author of The Daily Dirt Nap, the author of The Street Freak, the author of The Tenth Man, his books. Um, I'm going to miscite the book title Street Freak and All the Evil of This World. All the Evil of This World is one of your latest books. Um, he has a, a, a podcast, uh, the the month that podcast, the, the monthly dirt cast, the monthly dirt cast. Yep. Okay, we're we're going to continue the conversation with Jared on the second part of the program. We're going to be bringing in Mark Chandler, a currency strategist at BBH. You're listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 11. We'll be back after a short break. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. In the studio, I have Jared Dillian, the author of The Daily Dirt Nap. Uh, joining us by phone for this half hour, we got Mark Chandler, who's a Senior Vice Pre President and Global Head of Market Strategy at Brown Brothers Herman, uh, focusing a lot on currency. Mark is uh, another great return guest. And uh, Mark, I hear you have a, a new book out, which unfortunately I haven't read yet, but Political Economy of Tomorrow. Uh, you know, I had written a book uh, several years ago called Making Sense of the Dollar, and I just outlined sort of my why I thought back in like 2008, 2009, why we're going to have a sustained dollar recovery. And I focused on this one journalist, uh, early 1900s, who had this vision of the United States and how uh, the U.S. should act in the world. And his vision was actually implemented for the ba basically the better part of the last 70 years. And so I take his vision and I try to play it out, try to show what it means for the post-World War II era. And I see that the, uh, for me, the, the, one of the key issues, I'd say the, the, the hypothesis or the thesis that comes out is that the biggest challenges of capitalism don't come from its weaknesses, but come from its strengths, all this wealth that it produces. And so the second half of the book basically says that because of all this wealth and the surplus that we've been able to produce, social relations have to find ways to accommodate it. And so 
I'm not so much saying that social relationships will change in the future. I'm really saying they're changing already, and I'm trying to map out three of these relationships. Uh, women and men, employee and employer, and the citizen and the state. And these three broad categories allow me to talk about uh, immigration. It allows me to talk about technology, the gig economy. It lets me talk about what I call the feminization of work and power. So in some ways, this new book is really sort of behind the scenes of the first book. How do I get to these conclusions about the dollar? And so I basically share uh, with readers sort of this big overall framework that's really grounded in history, even though it's not part of the current dialogue. Yeah, so immigration is definitely a big part of the dialogue. Trump, we got the, the travel bans, um, you know, trying to be a little bit more restrictive on that. What's your, give us your, your big picture view. How, where is the trends going with immigration? How does Trump fit into that? Yeah, so in, in my work, I'd say that, you know, a lot of people are worried about this populist nationalist wave that they say is sweeping the world. And I think this is the populist nationalist narrative. I don't think it's true. I think that Trump's victory in the U.S., and the victory for the Brexit camp in the U.K. was not a victory for populist nationalist parties. This was a function of the, two, of the conservative party in a two-party system adopting the populist nationalist rhetoric and issues. It is not that the populists won. It is, for example, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a by-election in the U.K. And in this one district that voted heavily to leave the EU, the UKIP, the UK Independent Party, actually lost. Labor carried that district. And so I think that was coming up are the, Dana, the Dutch elections next week, same day the Fed meets. Then we got the French elections that a lot of people are focused on. And then we have the German elections in September. And I think that by the end of the summer, by the, by the end of September, we will see no populist party in European governments. This populist nationalist wave, is, I don't really think it's taking place. I think that uh, what this means then is at least for the next several months, people like myself who, who focus on the foreign exchange market can still focus on Fed policy, on ECB policy, and we don't really have to worry so much about uh, fiscal policy or, uh, or other uh, politics. I think that uh, uh, Trump's uh, fiscal policy, which a lot of us are focused on, infrastructure spending, deregulation, tax reform, is all going to be, it looks like to me, like uh, it's all going to be later, late this year at, at the best, if not well into next year, before these become driving factors. Right now, it's mostly fumes and anticipation. So the, the dollars had a, a pretty big move over the course of the last few years. Um, do you feel people say the dollar is overvalued? Um, do you still stick by? I mean, we've had you on the program before. Big picture view, divergence. Um, one, one, one question I always ask you when you come back, 85 cents on the euro, is that still something you see? Yeah, so I'm still, I'm still bullish a dollar. I, I tell you that even after, you know, we've had this strong jobs data today, we've had the Fed giving us pretty good signals they're going to raise rates next week. Uh, dollars uh, correcting lower here today. But I think that, this, uh, that the market, all the market did, I think, in the last two weeks or so, is change the timing of the Fed tightening. Uh, some people, like myself, were thinking May could have been a more interesting date. Uh, some people were looking at June. And so uh, because of the data and the signals from the Fed, everybody's pushed to March. But we, the people still are skeptical of the Fed's ability to raise rates more than twice this year. In fact, I'm looking at the uh, late this year or next year, uh, January's Fed funds contract, 
and I see only about a one in three or a one in four chance discounted. And I think that the market might be surprised next week when the, we, the Fed gives us the new forecast, the new dot plots, and that I, I suspect, and I kind of think the odds are heavily weighted in my favor on this, is that more of the dot plots are going to be pointing higher, the change in the dot plots higher rather than lower. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to come around and say four rate hikes. But I do think that the market is underestimating the bearishness, or the mm. hawkishness in this case. We're, we're talking with Mark Chandler of the Currency Strategist BBH. Jared, why don't you weigh in? We talked about you also believe the Fed should be raising rates more aggressively. Any reactions to what Mark has just said here or any, any follow-ups for Mark? Yeah, I, actually, I um, I agree with a lot of what Mark has said so far. I, and, and going back to the populism issue, I, th I also think that populism has peaked. And if you look at what's going on in the French election, uh, the political system got so polarized that they ended up with a candidate who is winning, who is going straight down the middle, a centrist candidate who is socially liberal and fiscally conservative, coming right down the middle in mm -hmm. France. And uh, that's it's not what people were predicting. Um, but anyway, back to the Fed. No, I, no, I really believe the market is going to be. I 100% agree. The market is going to be shocked at what happens next week when the new dot plots come out. So, so, I know that there's, ahead, there's some people that think that, like, the, you know, what's, part of what's happening. People thought, uh, say, at the end of last year, was that, uh, and during the campaign, uh, President Trump had or candidate Trump had been critical of the Federal Reserve, and people were afraid the Fed was going to lose its independence, that the uh, new administration would just be, uh, keep like buggy, butting into monetary policy. But I think what we've learned, I think more people have come around to this view, too, is that there are two vacancies on the Board of Governors right now, and uh, one, of the, uh, one of the governors is going to step down uh, next month. And so that means that uh, Trump will be able to name three of the seven governors this year, and we know next year... Uh, that the terms of Yellen and Fisher expire. That's five of the seven board of governors Trump is going to be able to replace in his first 18 months. He doesn't have to curb the central bank's independence. He doesn't have to make any criticism or inroads in it. He'll be able to influence it through the appointment process. Well, what's going to be one of the very interesting things is infrastructure spending. They need low interest rates, um, but you're going to have this natural tendency, uh, and I've talked about this with Professor Siegel, if you start seeing infrastructure spending and we already have basically full employment and you start seeing inflation pressures, these guys are going to hike rates, and there's going to be potentially a battle uh, between the hiking of the rates and Trump wanting infrastructure and needing low rates. How do you, who, who are the types of people who you think he's going to try to appoint that might help balance these, uh, these narratives? Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really convinced that those are, that's really the, the key narrative, because I think that Yellen was kind of clear on this, I thought, in his congressional testimony, that some of the changes that Trump is talking about, so if we say he, he gets his whole program, this is going to be some things that could boost the growth potential of the U.S. economy, and this is what the conservatives and Republicans argue, that through some deregulation, changing some of the tax incentives, we can boost the growth potential in the economy. So I think that just because uh, we get more details about his plans, I don't think that necessarily triggers a Fed rate hike. I think the Fed is, for me, I'd say that the Fed has shifted its bias from waiting for data to confirm that the recovery is intact. I think they, their confidence has risen in the last six months or so. You can see this in small, nuanced word changes in the statements. So I think the Fed now is in a state of mind where They've decided they want to norm that the economy is 
stable enough, resilient enough to, to uh, be, continue to adjust monetary policy. And I think now they're just looking for opportunities. And this kind of opportunity that we're talking about is not just in the U.S. economy, but also the global environment seems more conducive. Uh, if we're right about the populist moment in Europe or the lack thereof, uh, we're looking at stronger European growth. We're talking about trend growth, stable trend growth. It looks like the Japanese GDP was just revised up for Q4. Chinese economy stabilized. Uh, oil prices, uh, I mean, they're back basically retracing the whole gains made on the OPEC's announcement of cutting out output. And so I think that this is, so I think that for me, the Federal Reserve has moved to a, to a different focus. It's still data dependent, but now on opportunities for this rate hike. So there's a lot of people that, that uh, are rumored to be uh, moving into uh, the Federal Reserve. I think we have to see, wait to see how these play out. But I think that the thing for me that I try to keep in mind in these strong ideological times is that these institutions have their own interests. And, and just like on the Supreme Court, some of the nominees, some of the appointments have not been exactly what the president who appointed them expected. I think the same is true in the Federal Reserve. And think about what's happened. Green, for first, Paul Volcker was, nominated, was first appointed by Carter, reappointed by Reagan. Same thing with Greenspan, Democrat and Republican, and the same thing with Bernanke. And so that's why I think that uh, this kind of partisanship at the Federal Reserve, it's nice, and we talk about it, we debate about it, but I think these institutions have a life of their own. Hmm. So in, in terms of all the major forces um, sort of going towards a, a, a stronger dollar, the border adjustment tax is one that it's often cited as a, one of the big forces towards a stronger dollar if we change our tax structure so that we're doing less imports, we're doing more in the U.S. Is that something you believe has a fighting chance of making it through? Uh, good question. I mean, my, my best guess is it still doesn't make it through. And I see it, you know, uh, you've had other guests on your show. I was listening to, uh, thanks for, like, forwarding the uh, interview I missed with uh, Brad Sester talking about, I thought it was a very good uh, discussion about a lot of the nuances of the border tax. One thing that didn't come up was that it would likely be challenged and ruled illegal by the World Trade Organization. And, of course, the U.S. Uh, Trump administration has said they might not pay attention to what the WTO says. But the danger is, I think, that this – so how can we back into the smooth hawley? How can we say we don't want to do this but still end up in a world of uh, protectionism and downward spiral in trade? We do it, and the World Trade Organization says, no, you shouldn't do it. We do it anyways, and other countries do the same thing. Uh, that is to adopt other forms of protectionism. And so I know people – I mean, some great economists like Martin Feldstein – had a piece in the Wall Street Journal middle of January saying if we pass the border tax, the border adjustment, the dollar will automatically go up to offset that. And perhaps it's because I'm getting old in the tooth myself that I think that when some trade is so obvious, when great economists like Martin Felton say it's automatic, most of the time, in my experience, when something is so obvious, it's obviously wrong. Sure. No, I mean, that's exactly Alan Auerbach, who was the original designer, makes that point. He said it's going to eventually adjust. Professor Siegel, when we had Auerbach on, challenged him very much, said capital flows are going to dominate much more than these trade flows uh, in the short run. Um, and so maybe it does adjust, but it could definitely take time. That is where a lot of that whole debate breaks down. Uh, let me just remind our, our listeners here, we're talking to Mark Chandler, currency strategist at BBH. In the studio, we have Jared Dillian, author of the Daily Dirt Nap. We haven't really talked about emerging markets much on, on the show yet today. Um, Jared, maybe I'd turn to you. Uh, any, you know, you have a, a view the Canadian currency is going to be a weak currency tied in some ways to commodity prices there. I don't know if that impacts your, your view on, on the rest of 
uh, EM generally? I mean, do you have a do you have a view what what EM markets you like, don't like? I like EM broadly, and I, I think actually the last time I was in the studio, we talked about EM a lot. This is about a year ago. Probably, I think, the beginning of 2016 when EM was just getting trashed. And it did really well last year. And Yeah, and um, in Brazil, I think, in particular, was the big success story. And I think what I was saying at the time was that uh, Dilma was going to be gone and you were going to get somebody um, more market-friendly, and that's exactly what happened. And I still think that the best part of EM from a trading standpoint is the big, ugly bricks, right? Mm-hmm. Like Brazil, Russia, India, China, I think are going to continue to outperform. Um, Russia is maybe a little bit of a question uh, these days because of what's happening to oil just this week, but still I think that's where it's going to be. Interesting. Russia is now part of the Trump trade. Um, you got normalizing of Russia, right. that Russia is, is more attractive on, on that. Um, you got some very different. One was a beneficiary with with Russia and Brazil. Then you have China and India, big importers of oil. Mark, how's your sense on emerging markets? Do you worry about any of the emerging markets? Do you worry about the Chinese currency? Well, so I so I, I kind of think that there's like uh, for me there's like four things that make me really like emerging markets. I think it's like a sort of like uh, like uh, for me like gold. There's some spectacular bull markets and some horrible uh, bear markets. And so for me, the four kind of things I look for for a bull market and emerging markets, Fed easing policy or low interest rates, uh, strong commodity prices, strong world growth, and at least strong China. Some of these pieces are falling into place. The Fed is not, and the dollar is not for them. But uh, Chinese economy is stabilizing. Uh, we've seen, I think, though, this incredible rally in some of the base metals, industrial metals like iron ore, copper zinc. And these metals are beginning to come off now. I think uh, last, maybe it was this past Monday, the LME, the London uh, Metals Exchange, had its biggest uh, increase in inventories of copper in like 15 years. And so iron ore prices up like almost 80% in six months. So I think that a lot of the commodity story, as it's filtered through the currency markets, like the super strong Australian dollar, for example, the strength of the South African rand, I think that, I think that some of these things unwind a bit more. In terms of China currency, I think next month is very important. You know, when Trump was a when Trump was running for president, he said he would cite China currency manipulator day one. Not too dissimilar from what George Bush the lesser said and what Obama said. And of course, neither of them cited China as a manipulator. It hasn't been cited since '94, uh, I believe. But the Treasury issues their report middle of April or sometime in April, and. They'll, you know, they'll have a new treasury. We have a new treasury secretary, and that's when he said he will hold off making a judgment. And I think, if, the, if I understand it right, there's a debate going on whether to keep with the manipulation framework or go to an undervaluation framework. And by that valuation, uh, like some of the other guests have said, the dollar is overvalued by almost any metric you want to look at bilateral exchange rates. The euro, one of the most undervalued currencies. I think it's about 25% as far as the majors go. Uh, the Swiss franc is about the, is the most overvalued currency by the OECD's measure of PPP. So I, I, but, so I think that when we, if we sit down and think about the valuation of China, I think that it's not really that far off of what economists will regard as fair value. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting question on, on, on where those valuations should go. I mean, a lot of people say the currency would depreciate if, it, if they actually did call it a manipulator. On the euro, I'm curious. So, yes, I, I look at some measures that say the OEC dumbers say they're more than 20% undervalued on the euro, and that, that I absolutely see. One of the 
interesting questions though is and and what and, and in the rhetoric you've you've seen them say Germany's manipulating you know they're getting this unfair trade advantage maybe they call Germany a, a, a currency manipulator but is it just too it's too the euro's too weak for Germany but perhaps maybe it's not weak enough for some of the other countries like Italy I mean what's what's your sense of that yeah no I, I agree I think that's sort of like uh, the dollar might be too strong uh, for some New Yorkers or some Cal- people in California, but it might not be strong. It might, it might be still too, you know, uh, maybe, uh, I'm sorry, it might be too weak for some parts of the country, too strong for other co- parts of the country. That The U.S. has also had a very diversified economy and, very, and great disparity, say, between the Northeast and, say, the Deep South. Uh, so, I, and I think, that the, I think that Germany can make a better defense. What they basically are saying to the U.S., it, it appears that the U.S. is after bilateral uh, negotiations to discuss the German large trade surplus with the U.S. And Germany says, sorry, we can't negotiate this because it's not in our hands. The EU negotiates. There's no individual country negotiation on trade. It's only the EU. And he says, uh, the Germans say, and about that currency being overvalued, you know, we've been compl- uh, undervalued. The Germans say, we've been complaining about it ourselves. We would like to have higher interest rates and a stronger euro, but it's up to the ECB. But I think they can have even a better defense than that, and it's not, not so much on procedural and technical issues, but the idea that from roughly 2002 to roughly 2012 or 2013 or so, the euro was overvalued. The idea of valuation is not that this is where currencies should trade or do trade. It's really the level that currencies gravitate around the long run. These are cyclical factors, ultimately. And I think that the... Uh, it, 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 it seems to me it doesn't make sense to any currency that's undervalued. It should be punished. That doesn't make any sense to me. And I think that uh, it won't make sense to other economists. It's not just me who's like hesitant about these issues. But I think that this whole idea about what valuation means, are the Europeans purposely trying to drive it down? Remember, this whole idea of currency wars comes from when the Federal Reserve began doing QE. The Brazilian finance minister said yeah. monetary policy is currency war. And we, the U.S., says, no, it's not. So we can't blame. I don't think we can blame the ECB for pursuing easy monetary policy. We could say, Germany, we wish you would expand uh, your investment, which is a point I think that uh, uh, other guests have made about when you look at Europe, uh, that Europe needs to boost their investment. We could blame Germany for that. We could say, Germany, you're not spending your share on defense spending. So I'm not sure that a lot of German neighbors would want to see Germany all of a sudden become more militarized. But in any event, there are other ways that we could we could criticize Germany. But I don't think we could, I don't think it's a fair criticism that they're manipulating the currency or that they're really taking advantage of the situation. I think the hard thing for a lot of people to to come around and to come to grips with is that Germany can be hyper competitive with a weak euro, but they are also very competitive with a strong euro. So those who won't be competitive with a strong euro are maybe Spain, Italian, and French exporters. But German exporters will do well in the strong currency. And they do very well in a weak currency. Let me let me just ask Jared here. We got a little bit less than three minutes. I know you have liked France in some of your notes, um, and you've also done it without a hedge. So you like the euro, from what I understand. Do you want to just talk about your your France positioning, Jared? Yeah, I'm long France on an unhedged basis, and um, I, it was it was funny when I put the trade on a couple of months ago. I would say sentiment against the euro against the euro was at peak bearish levels, 
and a lot of people confronted me and said, why are you not putting on a currency hedge? And my, my statement was I'm, I'm, I was sort of agnostic about it at the time. Um, I'm, I'm slightly more bullish on the euro. I am currently short the euro, but I'm bullish on the euro. And um, for two reasons. One, uh, there's a lot of chatter just today. Um, you know, negative rates uh, in the ECB are very unpopular in Europe, and there's some chatter that they might raise rates before they finish tapering QE. Um, I think the ECB could be more hawkish than expected. Right now, people say they wouldn't hike rates until 2019. That might happen sooner. And I think the political landscape is clearing up, as we discussed before. Mark, any final thoughts on Europe? Last 30 seconds. No, nothing really to add to that, but I, I do think that uh, there are people that are pushing back, I think, uh, about the uh, negative interest rates, but I'm not sure if a rate hike from minus 40 basis points to, say, minus 20 is really a thing to get excited about. That's a, that, that's a good point. True statement. Um, so, yeah, we still have monetary policy divergence. We still have the Fed potentially hiking four times. Um, but, you know, uh, as, as, as Jared's talking about, three to four times. Um, I do think, like Mark was saying, that people would actually be shocked if they did that. If they, you know, people have been hearing four times last year. We only did one time. Um, always a pleasure to have you two on. Mark, thanks for joining us here by phone. Jared Dillian is the author of Daily Dirt Nap uh, here in the studio. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, uh, our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. Uh, you can also now listen to Behind the Markets on our Behind the Markets podcast, so stay tuned there. Uh, have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.